and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when Cactus World News were promoted as the next big thing purely on the basis that they knew you too. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer Una McCormack. Una, what are you up to and where can we find it? Right, well, you can definitely find me on Twitter because that's mostly where I am under the disguise of at Una McCormack. What am I up to? OK, well, I've got uh, some things coming out from Big Finish. I've got uh, Blake Seven Play coming out quite soon. And I've just had a novella come out, which is called, I've modestly titled it, The Greatest Story Ever Told. So, um, you know, I, I'm convinced you'll get what it says on the tin. Can I just take a guess that it's neither about Jesus nor the Sex Pistols? I can confirm that it is neither about Jesus nor the Sex Pistols. But if anyone wants to know anything more, uh, they'll have to get it. It's part of a, a set of four novellas which are all set on Mars. So it's, uh, it's quite an unusual Martian setting. It's just out from New Compress. It has the most beautiful cover. I'm really, really, I just think the cover is knockout. And I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it. So I think everyone should go and buy it and read it and tell me how great it is. How greatest it is. Yeah. Well, we're not exactly in a Martian setting for your first choice, which is represented by this. Okay, well, that's the Dilly Sisters with Alana Split singing Tara Raboom DA, as they always did behind doors, because that gag never got old or annoying. But we're not actually talking about the Dilly Sisters, are we, Una? What are we talking about? No, we are talking about school songbooks. Now, when I was a kid, we were sort of talking about the 70s, the late 70s and maybe the early 80s. We had these wonderful, they were they were A4-sized, but landscape, and they were very simple songs that you would all learn. And I loved school singing. I just really, really enjoyed it. It was one of my favourite things. I just really liked singing. I've sung in choirs. I really love the community feel to it. But these were sort of series of books with these very bright covers and very unusual names. Things like Tara Boomdier, the song called A Puskidoo, and um, I don't know, a few of them have got more straightforward names. It's a really distinctive. And the great thing about going back to these things and going back to the songs that you sung at school is that I realised we were getting sort of one of three things. We were getting music hall, like good old days. We were getting sort of silly Beatles numbers like Octopus's Garden. And we were getting kind of like communist anthems. <laughs> <laughs> Was sort of popularised by people like Pete Seeger and this sort of thing. You kind of look back and you go, can't believe we were singing this in school. So this sort of represents school singing for me. But they were they were lovely books. And I've just got one now. I'm going to do some with my little girl if I can attract her attention. But they're just really, you know, pack up your troubles. And yeah, the musical stuff is really good fun as well. So these school singing books, which are just lovely. Well, I was going to say, anyone who follows us both on Twitter will know that we regularly have differences of opinion over the good old days. Absolutely baffling. I don't <laughs> understand it. I mean, Top of the Pops 1986 or the good old days, which one are you going to watch? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even answering that. But, but I remember Tara Boomdia, the book, because the cover was this, they all had amazing covers with that real sort of 60s yeah. storybook art, because Tara Raboomdia had can-can dancers, didn't it? It does, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, very, very Toulouse-Lautrec, yeah. But the one I really remember was this one called Oki Toki Tunga, where <laughs> yes. the cover art was done by David McKee, who drew Mr. Ben. And obviously, as a child, it didn't occur to me that, you know, he was a jobbing artist who did lots of other engagements. And all I can remember thinking was, well, no, hang on. 
that book's got Mr. <laughs> ben Men on the front. What, what, what's happening? And all I, of my attempts to inquire about it were immediately met with, shut up, sit down. <laughs> it's years before I found out what was going on there. Little did they know you'd get a podcast out of it one day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's quite what my school were aiming for. Encouraged your attention to detail. That's what they should have done. Yeah, I I remember that one. I don't remember the cover, but I remember the title. That's very typical of me to remember the words, not the picture. I've not looked that one up online. I must go and have looked at that cover. I hope he did well. Have you seen his art anywhere else? Has it popped up anywhere else? Yes, he did the best-selling Elmer books, didn't he? Elmer the Patchwork Elephant. Is that him? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's brilliant. I'm going to have to go back and look at that one now. Oh, dear, it's terrible. Right, so... Okay, mind blown. (laughs) Well, I've got a troubling memory of, I don't think it was in either of those books, but I remember there was one book that had a song we used to sing a lot when I was the infants that I didn't really like at the time. And now I'm absolutely astonished and appalled by it. There's one called The Cannibal King. Oh, my goodness. About a cannibal king who went strolling on the beach with his true love. And basically, it was an action song where he took bites out of a make-believe arm. (laughs) Kids would love that. I mean, you know, kids are constantly kind of, you know, making jokes about eating you, that kind of thing. But, yeah, I I think it probably that's the kind of thing that would be changed now. I'm just reading Mary Poppins books at the moment for the first time. They're they're completely different. Sure, your listeners know. But there's a whole series where they visit all these sort of different different kingdoms and they've had to change it from dreadful stereotypes to different types of animals yeah i'm not sure the cannibal king would get back fast these days you probably won't get the king through either sort of you know a top ranking bureaucrat or something <laughs> e, it's political correctness gone mad isn't it oh oh it's a shocker <laughs> so do you remember any other songs from that era i've just remembered one that we sang the last day of our school at uh, primary school it was so long it's been good to know you oh i'm well enough just I've got a little thing in my throat just thinking about that. So that one just came back to mind as we were talking about them. Oh, there was tons. There were so many, you know. And then you were getting all the stuff off Bagpuss as well. And um, they're all really lefty, those songs as well. My little girl now goes to this uh, this band called Megson, who are uh, just a really well-known folk band in Britain and pick up folk awards. And they do a little touring show for preschool kids. So they tour as a band, you know, the usual stuff. And they tour as a a kids band as well. So, um, yeah, she likes singing. So, um, good. I see it's around every single one of those books have Morning Town Riding, which is a song I never <laughs> particularly liked, but yeah. that, that seems to be the common thread. Pack Up Your Troubles was in there as well. It's like all these World War One ones as well. You, I think you don't realise, do you, in the 70s that all those World War One veterans were still alive. They're still around, aren't they? So you're singing some of these songs. Most of them are a bit a bit more cheerful than that. Oh, that's, that's got that line about lighting up your Lucifer, isn't it? They're all singing about smoking fags as well. <laughs> and, and, and cannibals. <laughs> Absolutely crackers, the things you're singing. Yeah, lots of Beatles songs. When I'm 64, none, none of the sort of I'm the, well, I'm the Walrus stuff or the, the Psychedelia. Or Revolution more... 9. That would be no. quite good to tackle in assembly. Everyone would chime <laughs> bars hitting them discordantly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> trying, to, trying to knock it out on a desk and recorder and a wood block. <laughs> <laughs> No, we didn't have that. It was all octopuses and when I'm 64, I think. Well, you should actually do that because I think you'd win the Turner Prize with it. (laughs) New career, yeah. (laughs) Well, moving away from lefty songs and cannibals to slightly more wholesome fur for your second choice, which is represented by this.
that's somebody singing Ave Maria, which is a song that really, really haunted my childhood because I wasn't particularly interested, as you'll know if you've heard the podcast with Steve Berry, in religious songs. But this isn't actually the song, is it, Una? This is representing something that I thought you'd made up. These might take a little bit of explanation because, as I think you said, people think I've made these up and I haven't. So these are sort of little bottles that you could put holy water in. So I, I had a I had a Catholic, you know, upbringing. I went to convent school, got dragged off to Lourdes three times as a teenager. And lots of Catholic stuff involves, you know, splashing holy water around. And these are little bottles, plastic bottles, that are in the shape of the Virgin Mary. And the crowning glory to these is literally a little blue crown that you can unscrew and kind of get back on. And they are just unbelievably kitsch these things are incredible I mean they were uh, just saw them everywhere when I was looking you get them in different sizes you get sort of mini Marys and you know you kind of build a sort of full size <laughs> thing that you can get a litre in or something and it was a litre we were in France so you know there are no points so uh, this was lowered so um, people don't believe me when I tell them about these things I think some people think that the head used to unscrew that would obviously be ridiculous you <laughs> It's just this blue crown on top. So you'd have this little see-through bottle and she'd be there. They'd maybe have painted a few dabs of blue paint on so that you've got her, her rosary beads, which she's praying to herself, of course. It's all Hail Mary's. But, and then on top, you've got this blue crown and you would fill it up with holy water and you'd cart this stuff back through customs and splash it around your house. They are absolutely incredible. And this is only the thin end of the wedge when it comes to Catholic Kitch. This is just my the thing I've picked for you to have a little glimpse of the kind of tad that you could get. Our house was full of this stuff. We, we really were quite Catholic. But they are extraordinary. And you didn't believe me, did you? You didn't think it was a thing. No, although I was exposed to a lot of this stuff myself. I mean, we'll come back in a minute to some other examples, but the thing that I always remember more than any sort of souvenir merch, souvenirs of Jesus, what a theory <laughs> that is, but on the way out of our church, they were always selling what appeared to be a newspaper called the Catholic Pictorial. Oh my gosh, yes. I never quite figured out what that was for, what was in it. I mean, what would the news have been? The Lord's still our redeemer. You know, shock headline. <laughs> There must have been hundreds of thousands even of issues of this thing and you never see them anywhere. I mean, I had a brief look online see if I could find out anything about it. I found one cover of it, which is from when the Metropolitan Cathedral in Liverpool was finished and opened in 1967. There's a cover from there and it's the most 60s looking thing imaginable. It's got that real sort of 60s colouring to a photo of two bishops looking up at the top of it. And... <laughs> Who read it? It was the Liverpool Diocese newspaper, so it was it was read by my family, and we were quite we were quite a big family, so you know the circulation was, was quite, just to us was quite high. Yeah, it was the Liverpool Diocese one. It, it was the Liverpool Echo for Catholics, I guess, and we were out in St Helens, so we were a little bit out. So I guess it was all around the diocese. It's incredible. I don't know. They filled it with news. To, I mean, what you know, rosary will be done on this night. <laughs> Well, Easter I'm, early this year. <laughs> I'm led to believe, having asked around, there was also one called the Catholic Herald, which is kind of the broadsheet, and the Catholic Victoria was more kind of the, the heat hello <laughs> gossip magazine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's really, a lot of Catholicism is about gossip, isn't it? It is Mary seen in balm cake <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, I think the Herald was a national one, and, and yeah, that was obviously, you know, a, a different... That was all about kind of posh English Catholics, you know, people who are posh enough that they can still be Catholic and English. So. <laughs> 
But the Liverpool one, obviously, you know, that was full of Irish people. So, uh, oh, my God, the Catholic pick, that takes me back. Really, really does. <laughs> well, let's be honest about this. Catholic Church in the Northwest is one big gossip network because there's a famous story about, I think I may still have only just been 15, I might have been 16, but I eventually got permission to go and get my ear pierced. Yeah. And I did that one Saturday morning. And, you know, I was feeling quite daring, rebellious. I thought it was in the Jesus and Mary chain, basically. But <laughs> when I got home, I found out that my grandmother had already been on the phone because oh one God. of her associates from church had phoned her up and said, uh, I thought I just saw your lad in town and it looked like he had an earring. And she phoned up demanding to know all about it. It's that mm-hmm. vast, the trivial Absolutely. information about nothing just spreads like wildfire. Well, it is. What would they have done if Jesus actually came back? <laughs> they wouldn't have believed it. They wouldn't have. They'd have. They'd have tested him. He wouldn't have been good to. Oh, I don't like the look of him. His hair's a bit long. Yeah, his hair's a bit long. I'm not sure about this. A nice pair of shoes, though. A nice pair of shoes. <laughs> they, well, they wouldn't have liked it. <laughs> we might have more about his shoes in a second. But what other examples of wonderful religious tact can you remember? I remember once going to, and there was a lot of this in Lourdes, and there was a place just at the road for us. We were in St Helens, and I think this must have been sort of on the way to Ormskirk or something. And it was a, it was the place where you went to buy the tats to fill the tat the beautiful iconography to fill your church and i just remember that you, you could get these sort of they were little statues again i think they were mary again and they had them sort of lined up so you could see them all all the same sorts from very small kind of garden gnome sized up <laughs> to kind of seven foot tall that's serious business that isn't it so just mary ranging up like a sort of uh, nested doll <laughs> of, of the BVM. So, oh man, there was all sorts of stuff. I mean, rosary beads, lots of statues, all very, very kitschy. I've been looking up these statues online. I'm very, very, very tempted. There's something very um, sinister about some of them, I think. There were little plates that were sort of been cast in such a way that, you know, Jesus's eyes would follow you around the room. <laughs> sort of thing. I know, I know, I know. And then my favourite one, so, you know, I don't know if you remember those pen Ends, that would have a little bit of liquid in and you, you, there'd sort of be a little scene and you could you, tilt the pen and something would roll up and down the water. Well, we got one of these and it, you started with a... It was a row of clerics and you started with a priest at one end and it <laughs> went all the way up to the Pope. It was... <laughs> <laughs> it was quite incredible. I nearly picked one of those. Given the variety of those pens that most people remember, that's quite a contrast. That's it. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fairly certain I haven't imagined all these. I don't I don't have as good an imagination. I mean, I've got a very bad memory, but I'm pretty sure I haven't made these up. <laughs> well, I had a weird experience recently when I actually, I went to see the Goonies in Gasp at the Anglican Cathedral, who for some reason were experimenting with showing films on the big screen. Probably for people who haven't been in a cathedral in you know 15 <laughs> 20 years but while they were setting up and so on i was looking around and looked in the gift shop at the cathedral mm. and there was a rack of cds and vinyl it's really weird it was like being an alternate universe where everything was represented there were like pop stars there were kind of folkies prog rockers yeah. but all religious people that you'd never heard of yeah it's like this yeah. whole alternate world we had a sort of uh, subset of that which is that my dad had a load of albums from the 60s late 60s after Celtic one in Europe he had a whole set of LPs I wish I knew where these had gone which were all sort of Celtic branded Irish rebel songs 
we had to must have been about 10 of these which are just god knows where he got them from and you know god knows where they've gone to but uh I, yeah i can absolutely believe that yeah people like daniel o'donnell were sort of really popular with kind of catholic grannies weren't they you know? and of course everyone forgets there was striper the christian heavy metal band in the 80s who oh did my t- god. to hell blanked, with the devil i blanked on that one they were always on whenever there was a, a themed rock night on bbc2 they were always on as the last thing kind of, as if to atone <laughs> what had been on previously to, to get people to go to bed <laughs> yeah. i shouldn't be mean about this stuff it's uh well I, it's hard not to be it's, it's so i'm not being mean i'm being i'm being loving and taking the mitt and i can see a time coming when i fill my house with this stuff <laughs> You've actually got a chance to redeem yourself here because for your next choice, we're not moving that far away from this subject area. We're foot slog, 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 slogging over every curve. Foot, 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 slogging over every curve. Boots, 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 moving up and down again. There's no Well, I couldn't really find anything to properly illustrate this, as that was Peter Dawson singing Boots, 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 Boots. But we're not talking about that. Una, what were desert wellies? When I was a a kid, I went to a Catholic convent school, as I believe I mentioned already, and we had obligatory footwear. Yeah, lucky us. And these were these sort of little sandals. I think what people really know them as is Jesus sandals, but we called them desert wellies. So they were these sort of little brown sandals that sort of cross a little cross bit at the top and then a buckle at the bottom that went over. And we had to wear these at school. I'll tell you what, it's bad enough being 16 and at a girls' convent school. That's bad enough. It's bad enough being at a girls' convent school, 16, and the only Doctor Who fan. And Abba. I'm like seven. And Star Trek. And on top of this, you all have to wear these flipping desert wellies. And partly I think this was because there was a boys' school across the brook from us. And I think part of the aim was to make us look as unattractive as possible. (laughs) So we had these dreadful things. We had these fawn knee-high socks. And then to cap it all, our uniform was maroon. And it's, I've never seen, a, you know, everyone else is in something sensible like black or navy blue. And we are in this appalling sort of dark wine red, really, really dreadful, and a pale blue shirt and, and a tie. So these to me, I mean, we're niche already with the Catholic stuff. And then I thought we'd go even more niche with people who remembered the uniform of Notre Dame High School St. Adams, which is <laughs> kind of like me my mates and my two sisters so these were the kinds of things that we suffered in st helens in the 70s and 80s and um frankly people should have come and liberated us years earlier so this is a sort of nod to the, the horrors of the school uniform and our valiant attempts to subvert it by doing things like rolling our socks down hitching our skirts up and then and i'm, I'm sure the boys did this one as well taking your tie and sticking the thick bit inside your shirt so it's kind of scar style narrow tie <laughs> and a combination of roll down socks hitched up skirt narrow tie i can tell you the west park boys across the brook didn't know what had hit them so, <laughs> so these are these are the desert wellies the the jesus sandals that blighted the lives of many a st helen's school girl for 20 years my sisters will remember these i suspect they had a nice sort of smell as well i think they were very proud of the polished floors and didn't want us clumping around in heels of any sort. They had lovely soft soles, and, and they were actually very good for your feet. 
Well, my only take on subverting the uniform, apart from forever being in trouble for long fringes and that sort of thing, <laughs> was I used to wear, I've been to Port Merion and I had, I actually had number two and number 48 badges as well, but I wore my number six one yeah. on the reverse side of my lapel. So I could have it sticking Stand out, but if a, if a teacher came in, I could quickly flip it back over. <laughs> you know, and number six would have been so proud of that. That's exactly the sort of stand he took against authority. That's exactly it. I think he did. Our nurse shall now check his jacket every time and make sure that the lapel is flipped over. That's very bold of you, Tim. <laughs> but do you think, I mean, there is the whole kind of Jarvis Cocker thing of making all this unappealing, unfashionable stuff from the past fashionable in an ironic sense. Has anyone ever tried with desert wellies? No. No, surely, surely not. No, 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 no. So I wouldn't put it past a Dalston hipster, but they'd be badly, badly wrong. Well, we're finally moving away from Catholic guilt now and onto a better kind of good book for your next choice, which is represented <laughs> by this. As for Isaac, except for the fact that he is a male and not pure-blooded, he is exactly like our own fat, freckled Cocker Spaniel who was gloriously won in a raffle by the father in our family. The house, which is called the four-story mistake, is made out of several queer old interesting houses that I have seen, and is set in the kind of country which I have enjoyed the most. Country with plenty of woods, hills, streams, and valleys. Okay, well that was Pamela Dillman reading from The Four-Story Mistake, which is one of the Melendi family novels. So, Una, who were the Melendi family? Well, the Melendi family were the heroes and heroines of a series of four books by an American writer called Elizabeth Enright. And I read these books in Puffin books in the, uh, I think I got them in the 80s. Yeah, looking at them, they, they look like sort of 80s covers. And it's one of these things with kids' books of that era is that it, it can sometimes take you a while to work out where it is and when it is. I think because you're a lot closer in the 70s to things like the 30s and the 40s than perhaps you realise. Anyway, it turns out that these books, they start in the late 30s in New York and they're about the, this family of four kids their mother has died their father's very very busy they're trying to entertain themselves but they've not got enough money their pocket money isn't enough so they pool it and then every Saturday one in a month they alternate and they take all the money and they go and have a good time and you know sort of have these sort of gentle adventures about New York I loved these books I was the youngest by quite some distance I, I was in a big family but I was much younger than all the others so I was effectively an only child so I love family stories it was sort of what I could see my siblings have but I was just a little bit too little. And then in the next books, the war breaks out. They move out of New York. They move into the countryside, I guess, somewhere upstate. And they move into this sort of idyllic setup, this beautiful house. It's got three stories with the little thing on top. So, so he ran out of money to build a fourth story, hence fourth story mistake. And then the next couple of books and, and the last book about they adopt a local lad whose parents have died as an orphan. They're about their sort of gentle adventures, getting to know the community in this small town. And the very last book is my absolute favourite. It's just the two youngest children the others have gone off to boarding school but to make them not feel sad they've sort of laid out this treasure hunt that takes them months that all these clues are hidden around the whole area and it makes them go and meet new people there's nothing cynical about them there's nothing ironic they're just really 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 lovely family books they're beautifully written beautifully observed and as i say they do that thing that that some children's books do that and you probably wouldn't do it so much now with computerization mobile phones and so on you could be reading it in the 70s but the physical reality of the kid's life wouldn't be much different from your own there would still be sort of you know a phone that would ring and you'd have to pick up the receiver or um you know the post would come at a certain time or um, you'd have to go and get a bus and it's not like you'd be checking for email or looking things up on the internet even though the war comes in the middle of these books 
I really felt connected to these kids. Well, I've got to confess, I'd never heard of them. I mean, obviously, mm. I don't think they were particularly books that were given to boys. I, I mean, suspect Even not. though I had three sisters, they were never knocking around the house. But I've been looking them up online, and there were two things that leapt out to me. Firstly, I mean, there were four books, by the look of it. The Saturdays, The Four-Story Mistake, then there were five, and your favourite, Spiderweb for Two. But it looks as though most people think Spiderweb for Two was where it jumped the shark. They're absolutely wrong. They're idiots. <laughs> They're just, they're just, this is why you should always form your opinions before you go looking for fan communities because they're always wrong. There's always a received wisdom. It's always, it's like not liking Catherine Pulaski in Next Gen. People are just wrong. I think it's a lovely book. I can see why that people sort of love the central cast of characters. The youngest child is a little boy called Oliver and he's a very sweet, calm boy. What I like about family stories like this is that they're just unashamedly about love. And the kids fall out and quarrel and, you know, wind each other up and these kinds of things. But they're just unashamedly about affection between a group of fam- a small family and the people around them. So everyone's wrong. And anyway, if it was the weakest book, they're so good to begin with that everyone should read them. So she was quite well known and renowned in her day. She was a short story writer. I think she won the O. Henry Prize. Four collections of short stories. She's one of these people I keep needing to go off and research and read her other stuff. But these books have survived. They're absolutely lovely. It's a shame they didn't get to boys because uh, three of the family are boys and uh, the stories focus on them. But yeah, I suspect once there's a girl character in, people go, they mistakenly go, oh, boys aren't going to read this, are they? So um, they're really nice. Still in print. Everyone read them. I can say with some confidence, bearing in mind certain controversial books, that were passed around our household that <laughs> having a female character wasn't always a barrier to boys reading them let's let's leave it there exactly <laughs> the thing that i noticed was from what little i've been able to read i think i had a look at then there were five it mm. seems to be literally almost the middle point between in the vertical commas the old style of children's fiction and new style you know it, it just seems to be literally a combination of the two yeah that's really interesting actually because if, if you're looking at then the five i mean the, the boy they adopt has got a really awful background you know he's his parents have died he's in sort of rural poverty in i assume is upstate new york so uh, there's sort of little shades of a jacqueline wilson there yeah you know sort of dealing with with poverty and i, I think there's a very clear sense that he's he's being hit he's being beaten up which perhaps you'd be more explicit about in a book now and this i think it was written in the 40s or the 50s so it's it's not shying away from any sort of issue stuff but i suppose perhaps a british children's books we'd assume that's more the kind of thing you start getting in the late 60s stuff like gumball's yard and that kind of thing and that kind of super realist stuff so i don't think they're whimsical i think they're a very authentic set of family stories and they they capture a certain time in american life but i don't think they shy away i don't think they're as explicit perhaps as children's books would be now about abuse or poverty or um, cruelty but it's there it's there for an intelligent child to see i think so yeah it's really interesting i think they do sort of straddle sort of generational thing they're, they're definitely not narnia books and they're definitely not sort of bastable books even though they're family stories there's something a little bit more realist about them i think well in a roundabout way we're staying with children's books for your next choice which is represented by this in summer it was slightly warm in winter it was a bit chilly in autumn and spring there was a light drizzle but never enough for an umbrella the weather in the Wormslow valley was always more or less average and that's how the people of little Wormslow preferred it through the Wormslow Valley ran the river Worm. It wound its comfortable way once around the little Wormslow village church and then truckled off towards the sea as well-behaved and unadventurous as the villagers themselves, which is why Jen Ironsides Johnson 
was having a blazing row with her parents. Okay, well that's Rory McGrath reading The Boggart Tree by Martin Riley, which is one of the tales from the edge of the world. But we're not actually talking about the book here, are we, Una? No, we're talking about Tales from the Edge of the World. And originally it was a Jack and Ori series. I, I think it was written for Jack and Ori. Now I've picked it because it's sort of, it's a very, very late Jack and Ori as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's broadcast in 1988. And I'm 16 by then. There you go. Everyone knows my age now. And, and that's incredibly late for me to be watching Jack and Ori. And I, I distinctly remember turning it on. I was that's kind of, oh, it's Jack and Ori. Oh, I'm too big for this. And that was just instantly mesmerised by these stories, Tales from the Edge of the World. They're a really interesting set of stories. I've not met anyone else really who, uh, I, I think, you know, my peers probably be a bit too old for it. They're this sort of mixture of folk tales and humour and exaggeration set in this odd little kingdom the, at the edge of the world with the Queen Freya and there's people with names like Mab Nimble Shanks and this sort of thing and they're, they're just a really arresting set of new folk stories they're comical they're not like Alan Garner who I think is uh, you know, much more serious about taking folk tale and retelling it so they're sort of comical as well but rereading them it's going back to those music books you realise that they're all sort of little um, gentle socialist fables <laughs> <laughs> somebody just thinking the first story is great it's, a bit, it's about an old king being overthrown it's a bit like the Lion King actually or Hamlet an old king being overthrown by his bad brother and then the bad brother sells them all out to the bankers and it all goes horribly wrong and oh, it's a great little story and then they get a little bit darker there's um, a little bit more playful I think there's, there's one about a prince of flies and this kind of thing so you know they're quite they sort of draw on really archetypal stuff but the setting although it's a kind of folk setting just feels very different I went looking online to see if there were any clips or anything like that I couldn't find a thing which is a real shame I'd love to see it again but I, you know you've got to wonder haven't you if it's still there yeah because unfortunately I, I believe that does still exist but a lot of Jack and Ori was discarded in sort of late 80s early 90s I won't go into the full story here but it's to do with funding and transferring to digital tape and there not being enough money to do some things that they just kept examples of but unfortunately a lot of Jack and Ori went that's just heartbreak I can't believe that was still happening as later I mean you think we're, we're sort of in the stage of scrapping around finding uh, you know that's sort of when two of the Simons found isn't it that happens when I'm at, at college in the early 90s and they're still junking stuff and I'm sure there's complicated reasons but oh it's so short sighted really really sad I'm pleased to hear this one still exists I wonder if I'm sort of um, I've got sort of, sort of academic credentials that I can <laughs> wave around a very important academic please show me the uh, Jack and Ori episodes <laughs> vital for the uh, state of the realm so <laughs> I'll have to go hunting and see if uh, see if I can see them again well the only good thing is that you know all these programs do date from a time after home video was introduced mm. and you know there's a good chance that people might still have them in fact anyone who reads my blog will know that I did find some episodes of how do you do which the presenter Greg Knowles still had so yeah. that, that's nearly complete again now but nobody's looking for this stuff and you wonder how many of lost checkers plays pops or ragtimes or playboards might be sitting on the VH somewhere but Jack and Ori is an interesting one because I think people just remember it as an actor between engagements looking directly into the camera reading out a story and that was it but it was different from week to week and yeah. I tend to remember the really weird ones I remember there was a live action adaptation of Star Stormers by Nicholas Fisk nobody remembers that no no there was Help I'm a Prisoner of the Toothpaste Factory written by John Antrobus and read by Spike Milligan oh wow but, yeah, yeah. for a children's programme imagine getting both of them to do it I know I think Tom Baker read The Iron Man and I've disputed with people over whether some people think it had the opening riff of Iron Man by Black Sabbath not the do (laughs) do 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 do, but the the hammering at the beginning I don't think it did I think it was something else yeah Uh, yeah 
there was an adaptation of the Indian in the cupboard that when I was very, very young that had Apache by the Shadows as the theme. I remember the cliffhanger of the first one was a toy cowboy shot a boy in the hand. Mm. And I was absolutely terrified by that. But the one that I really remember, I was probably about 11. There was a a book called The Sybil War, which I think was a pre-existing book where it seemed a bit racy for Jack and Ori. It's about two boys fighting over a girl. Yeah, isn't that a Betsy Bias novel? Is it? Yeah, yeah, I think she was one of these authors, she's an American author, she kind of got picked up by Puffin. I guess it must have been the sort of mid-80s and they started publishing quite a lot of her books. They're sort of, they're kind of American high school 70s dramas, so they're not as, they're not quite as racy as Judy Bloom, which is a genuine contraband you know, and not published <laughs> by Puffin and therefore effectively, it's like they, if it's not published by Puffin, it's like the TV book equivalent of being on ITV, isn't it? So, you know, oh, it's Armada. Not sure. It's not come through the Puffin Club. Yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember the cover distinctly. I remember, I remember it sort of, sort of had a goldish cover with a kind of drawing of the, the boys on it. Yeah, it's Betsy Byer and, and several of her books came out. I can't remember any more of them now off the top of my head. I think she also did Bingo Brown, which was chosen by Ben Baker on the previous edition of this. Ah, so. right. So not sort of Judy Bloom, but, you know, still kind of real issue stuff I think yeah so what are the Jack and Ori stick in your mind oh I, I think the hobbits obviously is the, is the one that oh, sticks oh yes yeah, yeah. Who, who can forget that one absolutely brilliant I think really it was more just a sort of comforting presence you sort of knew you know you could you could sit down and, and listen to something it's really nice to see it still you think it wouldn't have a, a life anymore but on CBeebies it's the last thing of the day the well known actor or personality reading a bedtime story it's pitched a lot younger and they're, they're just one-offs. But, you know, we had Pearl Mackey reading Interstellar Cinderella the other night and this kind of thing. It's a little bedtime book at, at 10 to 7 every night. David Tennant's done some. Cribbins has done. Cribbins has been reading bedtime stories to the nation's children for, what, 300 years or something? <laughs> and it's just The Hobbit that's, that really sticks in my mind, as well as this one. But it's really nice to think it still has a... Something like it still has a, a life. OK, we're moving on to your last choice now. I think I know what you mean by this, but I'm not sure. So here's what I think of the sounds of it, and then we'll find out. Right, if you're wondering what that is, don't worry, I am as well. Una, I think I know what they were, but what were trick sticks? The trick stick. This was a piece of yellow plastic kind of tube, which, I mean, to my mind, it's probably about four foot long, but, you know, I was only eight or something at the time, so it's probably a bit shorter than that. And then at either end, there was sort of a little red ball. It wasn't as big as a ping pong ball, but it's just, you know, a little red, little red sphere. And then you had this, so you had the yellow stick, two red balls, and then you had a tiny piece of plastic that had a little hook on that you could hook around your middle finger. And then basically what you did was you, you span this thing around in the manner of a, I don't know, a magician or a, a cheerleader or something. It was a piece of plastic tat, basically. <laughs> and it was the most desired thing when it, in my school when it came out. People wanted these things really really badly you had to have one and it, it was it's a piece of junk i wonder how many of them have survived you know it was a absolute trash and i remember a, and i got one because i was very spoiled one of my best friends at school she really really wanted one and her dad was going no it's complete rubbish it's it, you know it's an absolute waste of money it's just junk i remember we went back to her house one night and her dad had relented and her mum had got one 
And I've never seen such pure happiness and delight that she could participate in that. So they were a huge craze. And I, I don't know how expensive they were. I think they imagine a couple of quid. But, you know, it's not cheap in the uh, early 80s in Merseyside. Or <laughs> and everybody wanted one. So it's the kind of first sort of childhood craze thing that I remember that everyone had to have. And probably one of the first examples of kind of like advertising really getting its, its claws into us. So that was the trick stick. I wonder who else remembers them. Well, I very vaguely recall, I didn't have one. Remember somebody coming into school with one? And it was like that bit in the Hudsucker Proxy. Everyone <laughs> crowded round open mouth. And then immediately when school finished, there was this horde of school children <laughs> descended on the local newsagent buying all the ones in stock. I think is probably why I didn't get one, because I didn't get there in time. <laughs> There were quite a few kind of crazes like that. The one that I always remember that I never had, and I've not been able to find much evidence of it since, it was something called Sonic Ear. Oh my goodness. basically like a loudspeaker mounted on a gun almost. With headphones coming out, you could supposedly hear secret conversations in the distance. You know, you could hear Russian spies saying, you know. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, with all the cuts to uh, the Ministry of Defence, they're probably relying on that now, <laughs> aren't they? But the main thing I remember about the trick stick was, I'm sure I'm not wrong about this. For some reason, Benny Hill was on. I never much particularly liked the show even as a child, but I have a strong memory that immediately after an outbreak, he came back in with him playing with the trick stick sort of silently oh, right. while the some of that music going la 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 behind him <laughs> and you know being silently in the vertical was hilarious with it and my recollection is it lasted for the whole section of the program up to the next ad break just him with the thinking, stick. why is this happening who is watching this <laughs> How much money has been spent on it? I was about seven and I was outraged at it. And I really actually, I want that memory to stay of it being a waste of a whole block on ITV. I don't want somebody to prove that it was just a minute and a half or something. They've wiped over some jackanory so that we could keep that. (laughs) Probably if you watched it now, you'd go, God, look at his skill and everything. It's the kind of thing that might pop up on the good old days. I'll, I'll have stopped watching by then. <laughs> by then, Benny Hill and his tricks thing. I know, honestly, the things they got away with showing us on television, absolutely complete junk. You wouldn't get away with it now on Netflix, I tell you. <laughs> you know, I, re- I remember the trick stick going on for absolutely ages. You, you know, it consumed a whole summer or something. I'm sure that this craze probably lasted 10 days. You know, everybody got one. Played with them for a bit. Somebody got whacked on the head. They got banned for playground, and that was it. <laughs> so, so I sort of sympathised with my friend's dad, kind of going, "Look, I'm not getting you one. You'll you'll get two minutes from it, and that's a fiver that you know the guy, the news agent, has had off me, and I don't like him. He's not having it." Speaking as a parent, I sort of sympathise with the uh, you know the desire not to waste money on some junk, but oh, the pleasure she got just from owning this genuine piece of rubbish and i couldn't find any pictures actually there was a, the only picture i could find online was some somebody had had to mock one up it's a very good representation of it so uh, that, that leads me to believe as well that it was quite a localized or short-lived thing so i wonder who else remembers it it was some um, oh my goodness we wanted them i d- have no idea where mine is now it's uh, lost in a it's going to be in landfill somewhere <laughs> well you say they were a waste of money and you say people threw all these things away which is probably true except I still have my Fanta yo-yo. Let's just see if it still works. This is legendary radio, my friends. It is. <laughs> oh, listen to that. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> well, I think that's... I wouldn't say that was a good enough note to end on, but it's a note. <laughs> it's a note, indeed. Yeah. Terrara Yeah. <laughs> Una, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Helen.
Well, at least it's free. A great big book of articles by Tim Worthington. More details, timworthington.blogspot.co.uk.